welcome to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Christmas Eve, December 24th. I'm Dagna, your reader today. Our bitty editorial is written by Keith Pease of Sioux City, and Keith writes, Do you suppose the majority of citizens would like the New Green Deal to mean more money in their wallet and, and, and less to government programs? Let's get back to tax dollars for service instead of support. Again, this was written by Keith Pease of Sioux City. And now we have the uh, five-day forecast for the Siouxland area. And today is going to be breezy and mild with some rain uh, with a high of 53 and a low tonight of 30. It could be starting to snow tonight. And so for Monday, the uh, forecast is snow and ice 2 to 4 inches with a high of 37 and a low of 25. Tuesday, it could be some snow showers with a high of 35 and a low of 24. Wednesday is breezy in the afternoon with a high of 35 and a low of 19. And Thursday, again, will be breezy uh, with a high of 32 and a low of 9. So it's going to get cold um, by Thursday. Our first article is written by Nick Hytrek of, of the Sioux City Journal, and the headline is, Partners Team Up to Open Vermilion's First Brewery. Katie Ulrich loved craft beer and wanted to own a brewery, but didn't know how to brew beer. For 17 years, Ed Garish had brewed beer at home and also dreamed of running his own brewery, but he wasn't enthused about marketing or running a taproom. Fortunately for both, Ulrich ran into Garish's wife at a party. Katie mentioned she wanted to open a brewery, Garish said. My wife said, you should talk to Ed. So she did. Both University of South Dakota employees, they kept running into each other at some of the same functions, and the brewery subject continued to come up in conversation. They soon realized they would make a good team, each doing the things the others either couldn't or did not want to do. Garish, an associate professor of public administration, knew how to make beer and would oversee brewing operations and finances. Ulrich, director of admissions and marketing at USD's Knudsen School of Law, would manage the tap room and do the marketing. Both wanted a family-friendly establishment, a place where kids could play card and board games with parents enjoying an adult beverage. By late last year, they were committed to making the brewery dream come true. On November 9th, they opened XIX Brewing Company in downtown Vermilion. A cart full of games to provide family entertainment stands inside the entrance, welcoming customers of all ages into a business Vermilion has never had, but a growing number of residents had desired, the brewery's co-owner said. We wanted to invest back in this community, Ulrich said. With any business, there's a risk. We knew the community wanted it and needed it. It's a community they believe stretches beyond Vermilion city limits, and the proof is in the brewery's name. X1X, or 19 in Roman numerals, is a nod to the number of designated to Vermilion in all of Clay County on South Dakota motor vehicle license plates. We are really community-oriented brand, and we wanted to expand past Vermilion, Ulrich said. They chose the Roman numeral logo because it's aesthetically pleasing to the eye, and they hope to brew beer that's just as pleasing to the taste buds. 
Head brewer Mike Markham does most of the brewing, but Garish applies his years of home brewing experience to help develop recipes and pitch in, along with the assistant brewer and beer tender Kayla Dalen in the brewing process. I just really enjoy the process of making beer, Garish said. Here, it's like a bigger scale. We're going to try to make very good beer. Housed in the former Mead Lumber office at 113 West Main Street, the brewery is across the street from the Radigan Platz, a plaza that's a hub for many downtown events and celebrations. Oliver and Garish expect X1X to be part of many of those events. Being on Main Street in Vermilion is the best place to do business, Garish said. It's an alternative to the bars just up the street, a quieter atmosphere where USD students can take parents in town for a visit or others can share a drink while having an after-work meeting. They could not have picked a better time to open. With big crowds in town for USD football playoff games and a Thanksgiving holiday, the tap room was filled during the first weekends with people thirsting to try the 11 beers on tap, plus homemade seltzer that can be flavored upon ordering. Homebrewed root beer and other commercial soft drinks are available for underage customers along with a small sample of snacks. Food vendors periodically set up in the tap room and future plans include adding a kitchen and a food menu. A large outdoor patio is expected to be open this spring or summer. It's hard not to look too far ahead, Garish said, but the focus now is on building an inventory of good beers and drawing people in the door to try them before eventually distributing to local bars. The goal right now is building awareness, Garish said. Those who have stepped inside generally appear pleased, Ulrich said. People have really liked the beer so far, which is really important. It's been fun to interact with the people. Our next article headline is Reward Established to Help Find Missing Trucker, and this is by Dolly Butts of the Sioux City Journal. Sac City. A $2,000 reward fund has been established to help find missing Wall Lake trucker David Schultz. United Cajun Navy Midwest team leader Jake Rowley announced the award fund in a Facebook post on Thursday. The Schultz family and United Cajun Navy, along with Sacks County Crime Stoppers, Sac County Sheriff's Office, Lakeview Police Department, and the Iowa Department of Criminal Investigations are joining forces to find David Schultz, the post said. We extend our gratitude to law enforcement agencies and volunteers who've come together in the search for David. Businesses and individuals, your contributions can make a significant impact. Let's amplify our efforts by increasing the current reward of $2,000. Our goal is to add a zero to that number. Last month, Schultz, 53, disappeared under mysterious circumstances. His red Peterbilt semi with white stripes was found the afternoon of November 21st, parked in the middle of the northbound lane of County Road N14 not far from where it intersects with D-15 in northeastern Sac County. The truck was shut off, the lights were off, and the key was in the ignition. The trailer Schultz rents was loaded with pigs, but he was nowhere to be found on that stretch of paved roadway, which is flanked by cornfields. Sac County Sheriff's deputies found Schultz's wallet and cell phone inside the truck. A towel, cell phone charger, and pocket knife were with his coat on the opposite side of the road. Since Schultz went missing, the United Cajun Navy, a Louisiana-based nonprofit, and volunteers have scoured more than 100,000 acres in and around Sac County. 
Sac County Sheriff Ken McClure told the journal on December 14th he's confident his office and the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation will eventually solve the case. He said investigators have not ruled out anything. We are going to run this out until we just can't run it anymore, until we can find either we can either find out what happened to David or where he's at and bring him home and give some answers, McClure said. Schultz's wife, Sarah, has repeatedly called her husband's disappearance suspicious and said this is not something David would do. He would never leave. His family is his life. Anyone with information about Schultz's disappearance is encouraged to call the Sac County Sheriff's Office at 712-662-7127 or email brown at saccountyiowa.gov. Donations to the reward fund can be made payable to Sac County Crime Stoppers. Checks can be mailed to or dropped off at Iowa State Bank, 500 Audubon Street, Sac City, Iowa, 50583. Next, we have an article written by Dave Driesen of the Journal, and the headline is State Panel Tables RV Complaint. The Iowa Public Information Board on Thursday postponed a decision on a complaint filed by two citizens who allege the River Valley School Board failed to properly notify the public about a controversial plan to share athletic programs with the neighboring Kingsley Pearson District. The complaint, filed by Jeff Law and Courtney Mammon, alleged the sports sharing was a very secretive process pushed by a small number of individuals, including two members of the board. The complainants alleged the River Valley Board's vote on October 16th to immediately start sharing all junior and senior high school sports was illegitimate because district officials violated the state's open meetings. They contend. The notice for the meeting was not physically posted on a bulletin board at the school offices as required by law or any other public place. While the district did post the notice online, it did not appear on the district website until 5 p.m. the day before the 5.30 p.m. meeting. The agenda did not specifically mention sports sharing or say a vote would be held during the meeting. Someone associated with the River Valley Board modified the agenda after the meeting to include sports sharing with the KP District, but there was no vote at the meeting to amend the agenda. Staff for the Iowa Public Information Board had recommended the board dismiss the complaint, saying it did not appear to meet the board's legal threshold for accepting a case, but the board voted unanimously Thursday to table action on the proposed dismissal order and instead directed staff to accept the complaint and bring it back for next month's meeting, said Randy Evans, executive director of the Iowa Freedom of Information Council. Evans said IPIB board members expressed concern about the inadequate preliminary agenda, which mentioned only activities and sponsor sharing, and the district's decision to post the meeting notice online only at 5 p.m. Sunday for a 5.30 meeting Monday. Even though the law requires notice of meetings to be posted at school offices. We have two areas of concerns with this decision, Evans told the board. The first is the sufficiency of the detail contained in the tentative agenda for the school board meeting. Specifically, the lack of any mention there would be discussion or action on a consolidation of the school district's athletic programs. 
The second area of concern is the failure of school officials to physically post the notice of the meeting, as required by Iowa law, on a bulletin board or other prominent place, which is easily accessible to the public and clearly designated for that purpose at the principal office of the board body holding the meeting. There has been and continues to be wide citizen dissatisfaction with Iowa's public school districts. At the core of this dissatisfaction is a belief by many citizens that school officials are not being as transparent as they should be. Kingsley Pearson in River Valley started sharing football this season as an 11-man team after years of each school playing eight-man football. Both schools fielded high school volleyball teams last fall, with River Valley advancing to the Class 1A regional finals. The two districts shared band and choir last year. Junior high school girls basketball the last four years and junior high boys basketball the last three years. School officials cited low numbers for additional sports as a reason for expanding the sharing agreement. Over 100 concerned parents and students attended the River Valley School Board meeting on October 16th, according to the complaint. They became upset upon learning the expanded sports sharing would start immediately with the winter sports seasons, even though River Valley had coaches and players lined up for the basketball season and local residents had donated $5,000 for new jerseys for the girls' team. Many River Valley residents also expressed unhappiness with the decision to have the combined teams to play all their home games in Kingsley, with no future plans in place to hold any high school contests or practices in Correctionville. In addition, they objected to the River Valley name not being officially used for the merged program, as well as the teams retaining KP's black and gold school colors. Kingsley Pearson also has shared boys and girls cross country and track and field with the neighboring Woodbury Central District for a number of years. The future status of that sharing agreement was not immediately clear. We'll now move to uh, one of the regular features of the journal. It's called Five Questions With. And today, this is Caitlin Yamada with Sioux City Santa Claus. Each year, many kids look forward to meeting with Santa Claus and sharing their Christmas list. While it's a big job, Dick Lindblom, Lindblom is an expert. Lindblom has been playing Santa for 42 years, and to this day, he still wears a suit made for him by his mother. Every year, Lindblom can be seen throughout Sioux City at the lighted holiday parade and lighting the tree on the museum lawn, children's Christmas parties, Cone Park, the symphony, a couple of elementary schools, in-home daycares, retirement communities, and more. Uh, here is um, five questions about his experience playing Santa and the, and, um, the experiences that come with it. How long have you been playing Santa Claus? Uh, and he answers, Of course, Santa is ageless. I started for my oldest nephew's first Christmas, and I've been doing it ever since, 42 years. I'm still wearing the original suit ba made by my mother. Well, why did you decide to play Santa? When my brother and I were about two and five years old, we would go to my great aunt and uncle's house for Christmas Eve. We were too young to know that the packages mom and dad had were going to be delivered by Santa sometime during the evening. One of dad's cousins put on a Santa suit made of flannel with a Santa mask, went out the back door, knocked on the sunroom window, and in the front door. It's a fun tradition to continue. What is the hardest part about playing Santa? Every so often, a child will ask for something other than toys. I had one child ask for his daddy back. 
I didn't know if he had passed away, was deployed or whatever. That always punches your feelings. What is the strangest thing a child has asked for? Every so often I get a request for an animal. I've delivered a puppy to a family and another family had a son who requested a puppy when he was about five. The puppy arrived the next day and the name decided upon was Buddy, after Buddy the Elf. That five-year-old is now in his 20s. What is your favorite part about playing Santa? My favorite part is seeing the eyes brighten up when they see Santa and tell him their requests. I never promise them anything, but rather I'll see what I can do. Of course, Santa isn't only limited to the young children, but to adults too. Our next story, Sioux City man sentenced for entering Capitol once probation terminated. A Sioux City man convicted of entering the U.S. Capitol during the January 6, 2021 insurrection in Washington, D.C. is seeking an early termination of his probation because he believes he was unlawfully sentenced. Kenneth Rader's attorney cited an August federal appeals court ruling in which the court ruled that prison plus probation is not an available sentence for petty misdemeanor charges like the one to which Rader pleaded guilty. In other words, Mr. Rader's sentence of incarceration plus a term of probation is an unlawful sentence. His attorney, Federal Public Defender Brad Hansen, said in the motion filed Wednesday and U.S. District Court. No hearings on the motion have been scheduled. Rader, 55, pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor charge of parading, demonstrating, or picketing in a Capitol building and was sentenced in September 2022 to 90 days in jail plus three years probation and $500 restitution to help offset damage to the Capitol. Three other charges were dismissed in exchange for his guilty plea. He has completed his prison sentence and then started probation a year ago, committing a handful of violations that resulted in an order to complete community service. In a North Carolina case similar to Raiders, the appeals court ruled an insurrectionist who also received a prison term plus probation could not be sentenced to both under federal sentencing laws. Rader was among the hundreds of supporters of former President Donald Trump to protest the results of the November 2020 election in which Joe Biden defeated Trump. The mob gathered outside the Capitol before breaking into the building in an effort to prevent Congress from certifying the Electoral College results declaring Biden the winner. Within 90 seconds of the mobs breaching the Capitol doors, Raider, wearing a blue Trump 2020 hoodie, was among the first wave to enter the building. Once inside, he stopped near the Senate wing door and watched, picking up pieces of glass and plaster as souvenirs before exiting the building three minutes later. Video played at Raider's sentencing hearing showed him cheering on fellow rioters and following them up the Capitol steps. Once back outside, he recorded a video of himself saying, Everyone thought we were joking. This is what you call serious. Rader has said he believes the election was stolen from Trump, but he knew what he did was wrong. I regret that I allowed my emotions to dictate my mind and my rational self, he said in an interview with the journal after his sentencing. I regret going inside. The FBI arrested Rader in Sioux City on January 20, 2022, months after a family member had tipped off agents to his participation in the insurrection. We'll now move to some business news. Hard Rock revenues up 0.54%, or about half percent. Revenues at the Hard Rock Hotel and Casino in Sioux City were up 
0.454% in November compared to October. The casino's revenues in November were more than $7.47 million compared to $7.43 million in October, according to monthly revenue figures from the Iowa Racing and Gaming Commission. The Sioux City Casino's internet sports wagering posted another monthly loss, $29,343.33 in November, its final month of offering internet sports betting. The Hard Rock stopped accepting wagers on its digital sportsbook, Hard Rock Sportsbook Iowa, on November 28th. The website and the app will be taken offline on December 28th. The Hard Rock's internet sports wagering receipts were also in the red in October and September. Sports wagering more broadly, beyond internet sports bets, delivered relatively little cash to the Hard Rock coffers in November. The casino made only $7,121 in sports betting revenue, according to the IRGC data. The casino sports betting handle for the month was a bit more than $1.2 million, and the payout totaled more than $1.194 million. Gamblers put more than 50 million dollars into the Hard Rock's penny slots, its top revenue getter in November. The casino earned more than 5.6 million dollars in revenue from these machines, roughly the same as the month before. Blackjack, the casino's top table game, brought in more money in November than it did in October. $316,575 in revenue on a table drop of just under 1.6 million dollars. The casino added one more blackjack table in November, bringing the total to eight. And now we're moving to a story on farmland pricing. A mixed bag for farmland. Uh, the survey uh, shows prices rise in some area counties, fall in others. Farmland prices in northwest Iowa were mixed over the past year, according to the annual Iowa State University data with some counties posting modest price increases and others seeing their land values decline slightly. Northwest Iowa has the highest per acre farmland prices in the state. Farmland in Sioux County and Plymouth County have set eye-popping records over the past year or two. In November of 2022, a farm in Sioux County netted $30,000 per acre at auction. The month before that, a plot of rich farmland in Plymouth County brought in $26,250 an acre when the hammer fell, which was a, a record until it was topped by the Sioux County sale. One of the things that pushes the price up there is the high demand for land for some of the livestock operations, said Raybel Shandio, author of the ISU survey and an assistant professor of economics. We also have some very high quality ground, she added. Some of the reasons we see, like the record high sales that are even north of $25,000 an acre, that sometimes is due to this type of reason. For livestock purposes, you need a plot very, very near, and if something opens up, you're very willing to bid for it. In the aggregate, farmland across Iowa's 99 counties increased in value by an average of 3.4% or $424 per acre during the past year reaching a new high of $11,835 per acre as of November 2023, according to the ISU Land Value Survey. This was a subdued price increase compared to recent years. In 2022, the state's farmland went up by 17% over the year prior. In 2021, farmland prices shot up by 29%. 
During COVID, we had very, very high increases in land value, Shandio said. Prices vary by location. Farmland in some Northwest Iowa counties is worth more than twice as much as land in South Central Iowa. In the counties that saw price declines, they were generally small. An average acre in Clay County is worth $56 less than it was a year ago, while in Buena Vista County, the per acre value went down by an estimated $61. As long as it's less than 2% is a very slight decrease. It's not really a fall in land values per se, Shondale said. But the reason we're seeing even the small decrease is because when land values were increasing, the northern areas experienced very, very high increases. Some counties were as much as 25% increase in land values. So we have to bring that back to some of the market norm. So we're beginning to see a very slightly decline in the northwest. And overall in Iowa, it's pretty much a stable kind of value, not really declining just yet. Statewide, an estimated 24% of the land that was sold during the past year was purchased by investors, half of whom were local and half of whom were not, according to the survey. 69% of the farmland sold in the state during the year went to existing local farmers and 4% were sold to new farmers. Foreign buyers don't have much influence on the price of Iowa farmland, Shandio said. U.S. investors, on the other hand, definitely are a player in the market. Less than 2% of all farmland in Iowa has some foreign interest, she said, so that's a very small factor. Foreign ownership is not really a major concern in Iowa's market. Seven Northwest Iowa counties saw a modest uptick in prices, according to the survey. Sioux County had the highest per acre farmland prices in the state. The average per acre price increased $5 to $16,521. Plymouth County's average price per acre of farmland is $15,214 compared to $14,965 a year ago. Woodbury County average price per acre is $11,597 compared to $11,230 a year ago. Monona County average price per acre is $11,253 compared to $10,887 a year ago. Ida County average price per acre is $13,736 compared to $13,512 a year ago. Sac County average price per acre is $14,425 compared to $14,397 a year ago. Cherokee County's average price per acre is $14,162 compared to $14,140 a year ago. And then six Northwest Iowa counties saw their farmland prices decline slightly. O'Brien, Buena Vista, Clay, Dickinson, Osceola, and Lyon County. I'm now moving to the opinion page and we begin with um, a piece um, from the Journal Editorial Board. What was 2023 like? Newsworthy for sure. On Tuesday, we name our Newsmaker of the Year. And on Jan January 30th, We'll count down the top 10 stories of the year, but we also asked our reporters to share their favorite stories, ones you might have missed. They ran the gamut from the 100th anniversary of the Bing Candy Bar to Iowans competing on American Ninja Warrior. Because you may not be regular viewers of our e-editions or our award-winning website, you may have missed some of the standouts. During the holiday season, look them up at SiouxCityJournal.com and you will see how your hometown paper is continuing to cover 
and uncover stories that are important to Siouxland residents. Need examples? Throughout the year, Kaylin Yamada has been tracking changes at the new law enforcement center. Dolly Butts offered details surrounding the disappearance of Wall Lake truck driver David Schultz. Dave Dreesen looked at the first non-family additions to Jolly Time Popcorn's board of directors and helped sports editor Ryan Timmerman cover area sports like a glove, hitting tournaments throughout the tri-state area and putting various accomplishments in perspective. For, the, for us, those are givens, the kinds of bread and butter stories we cover on a daily basis. But what about some not so apparent stories? Nick Hytrek went behind the scenes of a shooting death and detailed what happened before and after that tragic night. His three-part series has already won awards and is likely to pick up more in 2024. Mason Doctor, our resident historian, loves to look back on how things ticked, but he was also he also explained why there was so much feral cannabis in Iowa and what this ditch weed can mean to those who live near it. Because we like to introduce you to people you may not have known, reporters offer fascinating takes on a host of area residents. Earl Horlick explained what's needed to be a viral sensation. He talked with a Sioux City native who garnered 13 million views with a video. Peggy Cesanero interviewed a seamstress who is closing her business after 32 years. In those 32 years, she has fashioned clothing for celebrities, brides, and prom go goers hoping to look extra special. And when the movie Oppenheimer opened, Jared McNett found a connection between Siouxland and two key players in the development of the atomic bomb. Want more? We've got plenty of examples, but there are also those eye-catching photos by Tim Hines and Jesse Brothers. And add in videos, live streams, and other extras, and you'll see it was a busy year. Even though the journal left its 515 Pavonia building after more than 50 years, which was our big news, its commitment to Siouxland is still going strong. 2024, we suspect, is going to be even stronger. You are listening to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Christmas Eve, Sunday, December 24th, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. There are no obituaries in today's paper. So we'll now continue with the opinion page and go to the letter, letters to the editor. And the first one is written by Eric Bloom, Bloomberg of Sioux City. And Eric writes, Although this Christmas season has been fraught with many political uncertainties, whether it's been what's happening with the state, the nation, and the world, my holiday is focused with only one joy. I have been blessed with a wife for whom my life would be empty. Whether she has been instrumental in my recovery from an earlier accident or simply loving me without condition, she has stood by my side unwavering. Her, my love for her is the same. It knows no bounds. No gift could have been so special as having her by my side. So this Christmas, I have a gift to cherish for the rest of my life. Or, as we say, our love will remain forever and beyond. And this was written by Eric Blumberg of Sioux City. Our next uh, letter is written by Courtney Henry of South Sioux City. I write as a concerned Dakota County, Nebraska resident regarding Governor Pillen's refusal of $18 million in federal assistance to implement a summer EBT program for children in Nebraska. 
The program would supply an estimated 150,000 Nebraska children with access to quality, nutritious food straight from the grocery store, not a food pantry. As a mother of three school-aged children, I know that this program would help families like mine and keep children nourished and happy through the summer, all while continuing to support our local grocery stores and farmers that supply products to those stores. Please contact Governor Pillen today and ask him to reconsider the adoption of this program for the children and families of Nebraska. And again, this was written by Courtney Henry of South Sioux City. And then our last letter today is written by David Atkins of Sioux City, and he writes, In response to the mini editorial in Tuesday's edition of the journal, Donald Trump is not a nice guy, but he has been subjected to two kangaroo impeachments, one over a Russian collusion lie that has been disproven, and one over a so-called insurrection that falls far short of the legal definition of insurrection. He has also been subject to several accusations that do not hold water. Some of these suits are based on laws that were passed after the fact with the sole purpose of trying to entrap him. Again, this was written by David Atkins of Sioux City. And we now move to um, an article by one of the journal regulars, and today it is Steve Warnstead. A Sioux City resident, Steve Warnston is Government Affairs Coordinator for Western Iowa Tech Community College. He is a former Democratic State Senator and a retired Army National Guard Brigadier General. He and his wife Mary are the parents of one son and one daughter. And so today he, he writes, Former Vice President and Senator Hubert Humphrey once said that the moral test of government is how it treats those who are in the dawn of life the children, and those who are in the twilight of life, the aged, and those who are in the shadows of life, the sick, the needy, and the handicapped. We presently face choices related to that moral test. As we enter the new year, we will make decisions that reflect that moral test at the local, state, and national levels. The United States has the highest maternal mortality rate among wealthy countries. In 2021, the federal government allowed the expansion of Medicaid services to mothers up to 12 months after birth. So far, 42 states, including South Dakota and Minnesota, have adopted that measure. Six others, including Nebraska, plan to do so or have a limited expansion proposal. Only Arkansas, Iowa, and Idaho have no such plans in place. Access to mental health treatment also presents challenges. Last year, the Treatment Advocacy Center observed that Iowa ranks last in the country in beds per capita for those with severe mental illnesses. This follows a recent plan to close the Glenwood Resource Center by next year. The U.S. Department of Justice investigated that institution for uncontrolled and unsupervised experimentation on residents of the facility. As to our senior population, we face significant challenges. A national study indicated that 70% of older adults will need long-term care services. However, many of these facilities have recently closed. In fact, 13% of all facilities that were closed nationally last year were in Iowa. Unfortunately, patient safety and treatment are also increasingly in question. Many examples have been brought to light recently, particularly by the Iowa Capital Dispatch. A central Iowa facility was cited for failing to protect multiple female residents from sexual abuse. 
A Woodbury County resident was removed from the facility after alleging being raped and brought to a homeless shelter. Another Central Iowa facility resident was left untreated and developed gangrene leading to leg amputation. Another facility dispensed the wrong medication over 10% of the time. They also so served corn muffin mix 16 months after the expiration date and milk six days past expiration date. A registered nurse locally testified that she was instructed to falsify medical records. Resident care is challenged by the shortage of staff. The oversight of the facilities is also limited by shortage of inspectors. The United States Senate Committee on Aging released a report showing that only South Carolina had a lower state inspector to a facility ratio than Iowa. This ratio contributed to Iowa failing to meet federal guidelines for inspecting the homes going back to 2017. Unlike the kitty litter in school scare, the problems in nursing homes are real. Perhaps people don't care since someone they care about isn't in a nursing home. Maybe knowing that hundreds of millions of taxpayer dollars are sent to these facilities would increase their interest. Unless you are investing in these companies, you might at least care about getting the appropriate level of service for your money. The main issue seems to be staffing. While there are many great workers at these facilities, they need additional qualified and vetted co-workers. The same is true for hospitals. Incentives for those who serve in these positions and for those who instruct and certify them are needed. Action or inaction on issues like these will say much about us. Oscar Wilde is credited with noting, those who know the price of everything but know but the value of nothing. The, there needs to be a practical discussion about costs along with what we value. And again, this column was written by Sioux City resident Steve Bornstead. We'll now move to the sports section and we'll be um, have an article about the Sioux City Journal's Large School Football Player of the Year, Helens Quinn Olson. Quinn Olson is an ex inclusive winner. While the Bishop Helens Sr. takes satisfaction in personal success, winning with his teammates really motivates him to perform. Olson became the main character in the Crusaders football resurgence this football season. The biggest thing with Quinn is his knowledge of the game, said Helen head coach John LaFleur. He was essentially another coach on the field. He was a guy we could rely on when we asked what he was seeing from the defense. And if it wasn't that we asked him just because we'd want to know what he felt we could do, what he, we could attack, and how we could perform to the best of our abilities. The journal's large school player of the year, Olson led Helen to the Class 3A state championship game, marking a drastic upswing for the program after winning just five games over the past four seasons. We built a brotherhood, Olson said. I just loved being at practice every day with the same guys and building that bond. And to see all the blood, sweat, and tears finally pay off meant a lot, not just for me, but for my teammates, the school, alumni, and the community. Along with seniors, Brandon Watts, Hayden Overgaard, and sophomore Kaysen Thomas, Olson was one of four Crusaders to get an All-State nod in 3A this season. Olson was a threat to gain big chunks of yards through the air and on the ground this season and was a two-way playmaker for the Crusaders. The six-foot-three, 190-pound signal caller had an equal number of passing attempts as carries. The Crusaders quarterback completed nearly 60% of his passes 
1,215 yards and ran for 1,049 yards on 145 totes with 20 passing touchdowns against 6 interceptions and 15 rushing scores. On defense, he was in on 33.5 tackles, 20 of 6 which, of which were solo and 1 for a loss. It had two fumble recoveries and four interceptions. One of his picks returned 99 yards the other way for a score. It was a lot of fun playing defense, he said. Junior, I was pretty much on the sideline the whole time we played defense. There was nothing I could do except watch. But being out there and having more control over what goes on on both sides of the ball was a lot more fun for me. His coach also enjoyed his defensive efforts. Quinn's junior year, we only let him play on the offensive side of the ball because we, we didn't want him to get hurt, LaFleur said. But that's probably my fault because this year we let him play both ways and the way he was able to play as a cornerback and safety for never playing it on the varsity level before was unbelievable. His efforts garnered offensive MVP in Class 3A District 1 and second team All-State nod in 3A. Off the field, Olsen is a pretty reserved teenager. On the field, he's a fierce competitor who plays as much, if not more, for his teammates as he does for himself. I just always try to lead by example, Olson said. If your teammates see you do it, they're more likely to follow. So I just tried to do as much as I could, but I was more vocal this year. I'm kind of a quiet guy, but I spoke up when something needed to be said, and I think that helped us. To be sure, Olsen enjoys the license that the gridiron gives him to bring out a more aggressive side of himself. Once you put the helmet on and step foot in the field, you just kind of zone in on that, Olsen said. When you're out there, that's all that matters and all you're worried about, and that brings out a different side of you that is different than how you are off the field or the court. A multi-sport athlete at Healan, Olsen was a starter on last season's state qualifying basketball team and is a state qualifier in track. In each sport, he dutifully fulfills different roles, each making him a more well-rounded student athlete, and each contributing to making him the leader he's been on the football field. Playing basketball with somebody like Matt Knoll is a lot of fun. He's so good, said Olson, who's leading the Class 3A sixth-ranked basketball team and assists through seven games. But I think there's a correlation between the sports. The things you learn in one carry over to the other. Olsen threw for over 2,500 yards for his career. He split time at quarterback as a sophomore and has been entrenched as a team starter ever since. His maturation, his leadership through his actions garnered the attention of the entire team, Lafleur said. He's not a talkative guy, but he was 100% a team player and would do anything for the team. His senior class was all that way. They play for each other. To illustrate his growth between his junior and senior years, consider that he completed two more passes as a junior, but attempted 18 more throws and tallied 340 more yards and 16 more passing touchdowns as a senior. Not to mention he ran for nearly 800 more yards as a senior. It was a grind. Getting to the state championship was as much, if not more, of a mental test as a physical one. Toward the end of the season, when it's win or go home, you just have to forget about all the nagging injuries or wounds you have, Olsen said, because it could be the last time you play. So you have to put all that stuff aside and give it your all for as long as you can. Fortunately, his effort has opened the door for his football career to continue. I'm talking to a few coaches, but nothing official, he said. Olsen credits much of this season's success to the arrival of Coach Lafleur before the start of the 2022 season. 
Olson said he brought discipline to the team. He got us all on the same page and made sure we were doing the little things right. Because if you don't do the little things right, you won't do the big things right. We'll now move back to some business news. And the headline is The Great Icebox, Cold Link Refrigerated Warehouse on Phase 2 Expansion. Ground was broken in mid-December for the second phase of construction on the Cold Link Logistics Cold Storage Warehouse. The expansion will add another 155,000 square feet of cooler and freezer space, adding room for approximately another 25,000 pallet positions, spots for pallets loaded with refrigerated food items. Phase 2 should be finished by October 1, 2024, said Steve DeVries, General Manager at Cold Link. As of the week of December 18th, contracts had already been signed for half the available pallet spaces in the second phase warehouse addition. A meeting was planned that week with another customer to maybe sell the rest of the space, DeVries said. At present, the warehouse is capable of accommodating 20,500 pallets of products from the region's food processors. Demand has been strong for the space, which ranges from 20 degrees below zero to 30 or 35 degrees Fahrenheit, depending on the temperature needs for a given category of chilled foods. The warehouse draws ice cream from Lamar's, eggs from Gaylord, Minnesota, and other products from Lincoln, Nebraska, Omaha, and other distant points on the map, where 75 to 80% at capacity. Most of the companies DeVries, customers, DeVries said, that are coming in, they want anywhere from three to 5,000 to 10,000 pallet positions, he added. That's why we're building phase two. I don't really have that much space to sell. The Florida firm of CodeLink, founded by brothers Michael, Mark, and Nick Mandage, operates warehouses in multiple states. In early 2021, the company began working with the city of Sioux City, Woodbury County Rural Electric Cooperative and the Iowa Area Development Group on the warehouse to be built on a 40-acre parcel abutting 225th Street in the South Bridge Business Park near the Sioux Gateway Airport. We, are pro we were approached about locating in Iowa and were immediately intrigued given its role as a major food producer in the United States, CodeLink Logistics President Michael Mandich said in a statement in 2022. Sioux City became an ideal location due to many factors, but most importantly, we were welcomed by state and local leaders who truly valued the partnership and investment we were going to bring. Further support from the Federal New Market Tax Credit Program enabled us to get this project over the goal line. We are truly excited to become part of the Sioux City community and the great state of Iowa. The city of Sioux City, DeVries said, has been fantastic to work with, having installed a rail spur to serve the warehouse. The city's been great to work with, and then Western Iowa Tech has been great to work with, with some training money through the state. The 189,000 square foot warehouse had its grand opening this past summer. The owners have said they expect there could be as many as four phases of construction, which might bring the warehouse to a whopping 660,000 square feet. The warehouse currently employs 65 people, DeVries said. Phase two will add another 20 to 25 workers. Cold Link, he added, has really done good on team member retention. Our culture is family first and taking care of our team members, DeVries said. That sentiment, a company built on family values, is emblazoned in, in all caps letters on one of the structures at the Cold Link complex. We are big on family values, DeVries added. DeVries said CodeLink has employed workers representing about 90% of all the trades in the state. 
electricians, plumbers, refrigeration workers, construction workers, concrete specialists, HVAC techs, and the like to get the chilled warehouse built. It's a rather tall warehouse. Our roof is 62 feet high, said DeVries. Configured as 15 long aisles of refrigerated merchandise. Some of the best compensated cold link warehouse workers are those who man the extra tall, cold temperature tolerant forklifts that shuttle the pallets to and fro. The forklift operator is going that high. You have to have a pretty good motor skill set, he said. They're kind of like crane operators. Some food products in the warehouse stay for a month or two, while others, like case-ready meats, stay in the warehouse only seven days before being shipped elsewhere. DeVries compared the warehouse to a sort of hotel for food, with pallets coming and going all the time. Perhaps 30 to 40 percent of the food stored at the warehouse is shipped directly to grocery stores like Hy-Vee. The majority, probably 60 percent of the food, is shipped from cold link to wholesalers and distributors, like Associated Wholesale Grocers. The very coldest section of the warehouse, the ice cream section, is kept at a temperature of minus 20 degrees Fahrenheit, significantly colder than the average domestic freezer because ice cream keeps better at extremely frigid temperatures. Wells Enterprises, the Lamar's Iowa manufacturer of frozen treats, occupies 50% of the warehouse or 10,000 pallets. It keeps a crisp debris set of the minus 20 degree section for ice cream. Your refrigerator, a lot of times, you pull your ice cream out, is pretty soft. You can spoon it. This ice cream's hard as a rock. They want to keep it that way. Cold Link Logistics has received the Iowa Venture Award, an annual honor bestowed upon Iowa individuals and organizations for contributions to the state's economy by the Iowa Development Group. The company was one of six firms honored at a luncheon held in conjunction with the Iowa Association of Electric Cooperatives annual meeting, according to a press release from the Iowa Area Development Group. Cold Link was nominated for the award by the Woodbury County Rural Electric Cooperative, the power supplier to the South Bridge Business Park. Other firms that received the Iowa Venture Award include Central Incorporated in Hampton, Hyper Ceramics in Spirit Lake, Eiley Fabrications in rural Polk City, M3 Fabrication Bloomfield, and Post Equipment Company in Rock Valley. The 185th Names Airmen of the Year The 105th Air Refueling Wing in December named four Airmen of the Year for 2023. The honorees are Senior Airman Molly Bondrack, Star Staff Sergeant Morgan Erdman, Master Sergeant Shane Potts, and First Sergeant Brittany Willett. Von Drack was chosen as the 185th Refueling Air Wing Airman or of the Year in the Airman category, according to a press release from the 185th. She's in her first enrollment and has been working full-time as a plan scheduler and documentation specialist in the maintenance operation flight. Von Drack recently applied and has been selected to become a KC-135 boom operator with the 185th Air Refueling Ring. Erdman was named the 185th Air Refu Refueling Wing Airman of the Year in the NCO category. Erdman is a prior service U.S. Marine who now works with the 185th Transportation Squadron as a traditional Guard member. When she is not deployed or working at the Air Guard on drill weekends, Erdman is busy parenting her three foster children, according to the press release. Potts was selected as the 185th Air Refueling Wing Airman of the Year in the Senior NCO category. 
Potts began his career as a traditional guard member where he worked in power production. Potts now works full-time in the 185th Civil Engineering as a facilities manager. Willett was named uh, the 185th Air Refueling Wing Airman of the Year in the first sergeant category. Willett is a traditional member of the Iowa Air National Guard and works full-time as a realtor in Sioux City. Each year, airmen from around the Air Force are selected to represent their commands as part of the annual Airmen of the Year Recognition Program. And now on to Dear Abby, and, and the letter reads, My husband and I have been married for 25 years. Right now, our marriage is in trouble because I have been ordered to rekindle a relationship with his mother, whom I have not spoken to in six years. In my opinion, the woman is toxic. For 17 years, she has essentially stabbed me in the back. At my husband's request, I forgave her each time. I love him, and I owe, but I have come to realize he always takes her side. In his eyes, she can do no wrong. Six years ago, we had an issue regarding her spanking my children. I asked to meet in a neutral location to discuss it, but she and my husband's stepfather refused. To resolve the situation, I agreed to meet at their home under one condition. If an argument began, my husband and I would leave. We even drove there separately. Upon our arrival, my father-in-law began screaming at me, so I left, and I've had no contact with my in-law since. My husband says if his, wife, if his mother goes to her grave without this issue being resolved, he will never forgive me. I told him I did nothing wrong. I have no intention of rekindling a relationship with his mother. To top it off, my husband and his mother have been putting ideas into one of our children's heads, and now he is telling me I make everything awkward and I should fix the problem. Help, signed, ganged up on. And Abby responds, In California, it is against the law to hit a child. If Granny's old-fashioned method of discipline is ongoing, you cannot reconcile with her, and the children should be kept away from her. If this was a one-time incident, tell your husband you will forgive his backstabbing witch of a mother one last time. However, if she raises a hand to one of your children again, you will call Child Protective Services and a lawyer because she's a menace. Dear Abby, I need help deciding whether I should attend a wedding. I avoid crowds for health reasons. My son's girlfriend's older sister is getting married. Although my son has been seeing his girlfriend for more than seven years, I have never met any of her family, nor have I been invited to any events. I suspect it may be career-related, although I'm now retired. The bridal couple is requiring all guests, male and female, to wear black. I don't own a black suit. My guess is this invitation is a cash call. Your thoughts? Signed, Undecided in California. And Abby responds, because you do not know your son's girlfriend's family and don't want to buy a black suit, in addition to the fact that you avoid crowds for health reasons, you are off the hook. If you do receive a formal invitation, send your regrets and a nice card wishing the joyful couple a ha lifetime of happiness together. And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Sunday, December 24th. I am Dagna, your reader. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thank you for listening.